0: So I was uh, really glad to be asked by Pastor Tim to come and share with you, uh, kind of pick up where I was at from Philippians when I last got the chance to be here, um, and uh, really glad to do that. We share a, a common burden, I think, and a common passion for the church, and so I'm really glad to to have this opportunity to share with you. Um, I've been in Felch uh, Felch Mountain Bible Chapel for about 13 years. Uh, I'm from Norway originally, Uh, Norway, Michigan, not Norway, the place overseas. Um, Although when I was a kid, I used to tell everyone I was from Norway and just leave it like that uh, because it made me sound cooler. Um, But I couldn't do that with you guys. You know where Norway is, so. Um, And uh, I love the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, a lot. I I moved back here in in 2007 with my family uh, and have lived in Foster City, Michigan, just in the suburbs of Felch uh, ever since. I couldn't live in Felch. The mean streets there are a little too rough for me, Um, so I chose the uh, wonderful hills of Foster City. Um, When when Tim, when Pastor Tim asked me to speak, uh, this has come off of uh, a couple years now of getting to know each other and of him and I having deep conversations about the uh, church in the Upper Peninsula, um, about the need for strengthening churches in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and perhaps even starting churches in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And that's kind of what I'm going to focus on. That's primarily what I am going to focus on this morning with you. And um, we're going to look in a couple of places. We're going to do a big survey of the Book of Acts this morning. Uh, I'm going to highlight a couple of key passages for you. Um, I know we will not be able to dig deep into the book of Acts. That would take us all day plus a number of other weeks after that, I think, to really build a big case for this. Um, but the last time I was with you, if, for those of you who were here and you remember, I delivered a message from the book of Philippians, and I titled that message, Press On. And I wanted to encourage you as a church and as individual Christians to recognize this truth, that God is always at work in you Uh, in you and through you, sorry, God is always at work in you and through you for the progress of the gospel. Always. It never ends. It never stops. No matter what situation you're dealing with, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, he has promised that he will finish the work he started in you. But even more than that, he will work through you as part of the body of Christ to build up his church. And now let me define the church for you so that at the beginning, none of us are confused. When I say the word church, I will never mean building, ever, because the New Testament never uses the word to define a building. It always defines it as a people in a place. And then a larger church, which would be every believer throughout all time in history, who will all gather together, and we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to enjoy Jesus together from every walk of life. And that's going to be awesome. But for now, while you and I live in this world, the only place we can enjoy that is in local gatherings of Christians Called churches, or what we call churches. Now, sadly, over time, the church has come to mean a place or a building. We use it. Think about the way you use language. I'm going to church. You could say more accurately, I'm going to worship with the church, because the church is a gathering of people who have believed in Jesus Christ who are organized under qualified leadership, who gather together to love one another, to worship Jesus, to serve and care for each other, and then scatter into their communities to love their neighbors, to demonstrate the gospel in their lives, to speak the gospel to their friends, and to bless that community they're in. That's the local church. So right at the beginning, that's what I'm talking about whenever I say that word. So there's no confusion, right? So when I say the church at Felch Mountain, that's my people, not the building. I love those people. I miss them right now. Uh, I love being with them. Um, and I hope they're actually having a great time without me. They probably are. Um, because they'll recognize that the guy filling in for me speaks half the time I do. That message I told you, press on, fits with this. It makes one sentence Press on to the ends of the earth. And I want to define for you what I think the Lord meant by the ends of the earth by looking at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So if you do have a Bible with you or you have a phone with you with a Bible app on there, please uh, open up to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I got to get there myself. Now just to set the scene for you, The disciples of Jesus had gone through a really rough season for the last three months. Maybe a little bit more than that. Jesus was building his ministry all the way up to Jerusalem. They were excited. They believed him to be the Messiah, the promised Savior, who would liberate Israel from Rome. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he marches in on a donkey, if you remember this story, and everyone's going, Hosanna, Great is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they think he's going to take the throne at this point and overthrow Rome. And he goes in and he tours the temple and he leaves and he goes back out to Bethany where he hangs out during the week. And in that last week, the disciples are up and down. They're like, he's doing it. Oh, he's not doing it. He's doing it. Oh, he's not doing it. And then he's crucified. And those same disciples who were like, this is it, were now like, let's run. And they ran away, many of them. Some came back around and watched at the cross, like John. Peter stood at a distance and denied him three times. But they all freaked out. Then, three days after he was crucified, he rises again. And shortly after that, they're all gathered in a room and they're in wonder and awe as they touch Jesus, the risen Savior. They put their hand in his side, they eat with him, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And they still don't, they get it, they're starting to get it even more, but they don't fully get it. Because in Acts chapter 1, Jesus meets with them on the Mount of Olives, the place he'd been with them so many other times. And this time he's going to go and he's going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father. And while they're there, when they meet together, they ask him a question. Look at chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 6, excuse me. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And when he had said these things, he was, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way you saw him go. Okay? I really like this account because I think it demonstrates what the church tends to do throughout history. The first thing we tend to do is we tend to get really detailed about when Jesus is going to return. And we spend a lot of our time asking the questions, when, how, when? And we dig, and we got all of our charts out, and it, you know, like it'd be like in my office, I've got all that, that detective spider wire out, and I'm mapping every single thing and trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and whatever else. Is it at this time you're gonna restore the kingdom? And what does Jesus say? That's not for you. We are the welcoming committee. We are not the planning committee. We don't need all those details. The second thing the church does in this passage is once Jesus ascends, what do the disciples do? <laughs> and they did it for, for some time, I guess, And granted, it's amazing. If we saw somebody ascend into heaven, we'd be going like this too. (laughs) But you think, they're thinking, he's coming back. It's coming. Like, he's coming back. Let's go. What what has to happen? Angels have to show up and go, guys, hello. Can you imagine them? All 12 or 11. And the angels tap him on the shoulder. Hey, Guys go do what he said. Sometimes the church needs to be reminded to get our heads out of the clouds and go do what he said. Sometimes we need to be reminded to stop digging into details and do the simple things he said to do. And that's what the disciples did. So I have three things on this next slide for you. Um, Jesus gives them a new priority in this text. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, you will be my witnesses when you receive power. He tells them that they're going to do something, and they're going to witness. Now our question is going to be, what does it mean to witness? And we're going to cover that in a moment. But he also gives them a great power. You are not just going to be witnesses, but you are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to do that very thing. Now, that's really important because many of us want to be in touch with the Spirit of God. We want the Spirit of God to lead us in our lives, and that's a good thing. And the Spirit comforts us and leads us in the teaching of Jesus and gives us wisdom in moments when we need it and convicts us of sin when we're wandering, all these wonderful things. But the Spirit of God, through the people of God, is driving towards a mission, and that is being witnesses. And then he does that phrase in the text, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? Now, for years, I've taught and I've been taught that that means we as a church should reach people for Jesus right here where we are, Jerusalem, in our neighborhoods and city, Judea, or our region— In our state or nation, Samaria, and and then the the ends of the earth would be far. So we have a nearby ministry, we have a regional ministry, and we have a global ministry. And we've built entire structures as pastors around those three ideas. But it occurred to me that Jesus might also be saying something else. I don't think that's wrong, but there's probably something more. If you could go back to that text for me for a moment. Um, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you remember the disciples' question? When are you going to do the thing you said you would do? This is not only about place, it's about time. You will be my witnesses. Do you think it was easy for the disciples to get to the end of the earth? Three weeks ago, I flew back from Spain. It took me 10 hours. Not then. You and I, according to where the disciples didn't even know you and I existed over here, because we didn't exist, but the UP did. They didn't even know this existed yet. The ends of the earth to them were someplace far, far on the edges of the Roman Empire. You and I are on the far side of that. I think this is also about time. To the end of the earth, press on until the end of it, because there is a space that the kingdom of God needs to conquer, and there's a work that needs to be done over the whole length of human time until God reconciles all things to himself. And so I think this is also a keep on, keepin' on sort of thing, which is why I say press on to the ends of the earth. Let me show you it in a different slide, uh, just to give you the example of what I mean. The arrow represents time and movement, or action, towards a purpose, And that is the spirit-empowered witness. And on the top there, if you can see it, um, it should be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the end of the, and earth should be over there with it, okay? The ends of the earth. That's the geography, right, that we're moving across. Now, look at the bottom one, and that us should actually be on the far end of the arrow. It should be Jesus started the work, the apostles carried it on, they handed it off to faithful men who handed it off to others, and now the same work is ours. The, the, the same spirit-empowered work that Jesus gave the apostles is the same spirit-empowered work that he gives to us. If we want to be working with God in the 21st century, we do the work he set out to do and pattern for us in the book of Acts. And that is establishing strong, healthy congregations, churches, people, and starting new ones. That's what the early church did. I'm gonna show you that. What what, what I'm trying to convey to you is that we have that same priority. We have that same power. And we have that exact same purpose. Okay, so let's, let's, I'm gonna prove this to you now, at least the pattern of what the apostles did and hopefully convince you If you're not already convinced that this is the work we are to be doing and that everything you and I do as believers, from the newest Christian in the room to the Christian who's been here a long time, to someone who has a leadership position, or to someone who's aspiring to leadership, we are all working for this same goal. Every action of ours, everything we do is pulling together for this same purpose. Not one thing you and I do, whether you are a new believer or you're a pastor, is outside of this mission. Okay? So let's look at Acts chapter 2. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I want to summarize it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight two key passages in the book of Acts, and I'm going to summarize two major sections in the book of Acts and then show you the summary passage. Okay? So in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses uh, 42 and f- to 47. That's the summary passage that Luke gives regarding this first part of the book of Acts. And what has happened up to this point is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Okay, everyone kept following along? Acts chapter one, verse eight, you're gonna be my witnesses when you receive the Holy Spirit. You're gonna have power to do this. And... Um, In Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the chapter, the disciples are in the upper room, they're praying, they're waiting, and there's this great holiday season in Jerusalem called Pentecost. And people from all over the world have gathered together at Pentecost to celebrate and to worship in a variety of ways, people from every different nation who spoke all these different languages. And the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, and they began to speak in these other languages, And there was such a noise and a commotion about this that people from the city began to gather in and try to figure out what was going on. And the text tells us that some were amazed and said, what is this? And some were like, they're drunk. They are wasted. And what is Peter's response? Hey, we're not wasted. It's midday. The first century people are just like us. We knew it wasn't right to be wasted at midday. (laughs) Do you get that? It's not funny, is it? No, not funny. But it's a little, little point that shows you we're the same people, aren't we? They had a pattern. So Peter stands up and he starts to proclaim this to them. And he shares with them the promise of God from the Old Testament that the Spirit of God would be given to people. And that this was the promise that was given by faith through Jesus Christ. And that Jesus, the one that they crucified, was the one that God appointed to save men and give this promise of the Holy Spirit. And people were cut to the heart. Some mocked. But 3,000 men that day believed. And they were saved. And that doesn't include women and children. They typically only counted the men. But there could have been another couple thousand women and children. So the church went from about 150 or so people to about 3,150 or more. That's a problem. It's a good problem. There's a lot of logistics in that. And what did they do? This is the summary passage. Chapter 2, verse 42. And when they, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers... What existed in Jerusalem that wasn't there before? The church. What did the, of the, what did the witnessing of Peter do? It established a community of people who did this very thing that we just read. They began to gather together. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, which, by the way, was the teaching of Jesus handed off. They delivered that to them, and they gathered together in homes and in large settings. They loved each other. They served each other. They were generous with each other, and they had favor with their community at large. And God continued to work through them to reach through neighborhoods and economic sectors all the way to different people in the city because the church becomes the constant gospel presence in a city or a town. We are the ones that continue the work the apostles started right where we are. Everyone was part of that. Everyone was pulling together. But you see, the church was established. This happened again and again all the way through the book of Acts, all the way up into chapter 13. I want to go there now. I'm going to summarize chapter 13 and 14 for you, okay? But up to this point... We are now no longer in Jerusalem. We are in a city called Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem in present-day Syria. Okay, so it's just southeast of the Turkey border, if you can picture that on a map. And Antioch was a church that started because some people were persecuted by a guy named Saul, who then later became the Apostle Paul. Paul. And he had driven people out because of this persecution. And everywhere that those people went, people that you don't even know their names, they told people about Jesus in every city and every place that they were. And there were men who went to Antioch, and they started telling everybody about Jesus. And these people believed, and they started to gather together. And the church in Jerusalem heard this, so they sent a guy named Barnabas up there, who was a trusted leader, and he began to stabilize this group of believers. And he needed help, so he went and got Paul who was once Saul, and he brought him in, and they began to teach and shepherd and care for this church, so much so that this church was called Christians. First time we ever see the word in literature or in Christian history. And it may have been derogatory. It may have been people saying, oh, Christian, oh, Christian, like little Jesus. But it may have also been a label that they had began to adopt for themselves, and what that label signifies is they began to be a unique community within the city of Antioch. They couldn't be called Jews because they weren't like them in every way. They couldn't be called Gentiles because they weren't like the Gentiles in every way. But they were uni- a unique community created in the center of this ancient city. And God poured into them. And I want you to see what happens in chapter 13. Uh, chapter 13, verses 1 uh, to 3, I believe. Now, there were, in the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These are all key leaders, all right? And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord said, or the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, what did they do? Well, I've got a map here to show you what they did. They started in Antioch, and they went off to the island of Crete, and while they were there, they shared the gospel with the proconsul, which would have been the governor of Crete, and other people across the island from one side to the other. Then they went up to a place called Pisidian Antioch, and they preached the gospel there as well. And that was a really rough mountainous trip to get there. It took a lot of work for them to get to Pisidian Antioch, but they did. They preached the gospel there, and people believed. They gathered those believers together, and once that had happened, they moved on to the place called Iconium, which was another fairly large city. Pisidian Antioch was kind of the big city of the region. Iconium was like Green Bay, okay? So we've got maybe Milwaukee, Green Bay. And then they went to Lystra, which was a small town where a man, a young boy actually named Timothy lived. And his mom and his grandmother came to faith in Christ in that time. And Timothy did through their influence and through Paul's influence. Then Paul went off with Barnabas to a city called Derby, where he preached the gospel there as well. There's lots more in the story. Persecutions, troubles, misunderstandings. But they preached the gospel in every place. And then they turned around. And they went back. Now I want you to look at the map. Would it make sense... To go east to Antioch or to go back the way they came? They didn't have cars, remember. They were walking. It would have made sense to go east, but they didn't. I want you to look at the end of my section, chapter 13 to 14. We're going to look at the end of 14 here. And I want to show you the summary that Luke gives of what they did. This is um, 21 to 23. 21 to 23. Let me, go back to, let me go to the next map and I'll show you what they did. These dots represent churches. I didn't put them on the first one because the first time through they preached the gospel and they gathered believers. What did they do on the way back? They strengthened the souls of the disciples. Do you know how you strengthen the souls of the disciples? You teach, you encourage, you admonish, you rebuke, you care, you gather them in love for each other and you root them in the teaching of Christ. That's how you strengthen That's what Paul and Barnabas did. They admonished them, they warned them that it was gonna be hard. They appointed leaders for them. And this word commend, or they entrusted to them, the work. They commended them to the Lord, meaning the Lord was gonna care for them, the Lord was gonna continue to work in them. This didn't mean that Paul didn't have any connection with these churches. It meant that they were now established to the point where they needed to represent Christ and live for him as they waited the day of his return. Because the context of Acts is that Jesus is still coming back. He just hasn't yet. What exists in every place where Paul and Barnabas preached? A church. What what wasn't there beforehand? A church. The same thing happened later on. The yellow dots represent a second missionary journey as Paul went further. And before he went further, he went back through these red churches... And he strengthened them, and then he moved on from them further. What I want to show you with that is that this was the mission that the church did. This is what witnessing looked like. Paul had a pattern. It wasn't perfect, and he didn't do it in every place. But the book of Acts shows us that there is this process that the early church went about and I think you can boil it down to a couple of things. This actually comes from a man named David Hesselgrave, who was an expert at the university. I think he was at the University of Michigan, um, or he might have been at Trinity. But he wrote a book called Planting Churches Cross Culturally, where he showed and proved this pattern from the text of Scripture. And he makes it a little bit more robust than this. Hopefully, it's clear to you. The top one is proclaim. Wherever they went, they proclaimed the gospel. After they proclaimed, they gathered believers together into a new community. As they gathered them, they began to teach them all that Jesus had commanded. Isn't that the Great Commission? Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what they're doing. They taught, they appointed leaders. We see that in Acts chapter 14, and then they commended them, and they went on further. Paul believed this was crucial to the progress of the gospel. And that if these churches didn't grow in their faith and stay strong and then become part of the team that moved this forward, the witness would falter. It wouldn't end because God was going to do his work, but it would pull off to the side of the road with a flat tire, or it would have a, uh, a bad problem in the engine. I want you to. Uh, I'm going to reference something for you that I came across years ago as I was reading first. um, I lost my place here. I pulled it out, of all things. I had marked a bunch of places. Um, 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. um, There's a spot here, verses 15 and 16. Paul is writing to this church. And the, the Corinthian church had some issues. And Paul really invested a lot of his time and energy into this this church family in the city of Corinth. But in, in verses 15 and 16, I want you to see the connection Paul makes with strong, healthy churches and the progress of the gospel, okay? Look at uh, verse 15, uh, chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. We do not boast beyond limit in the, ho- in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. What is Paul saying? As you, as a Corinthian church, as you grow strong, as your faith increases, you enable us as a team to go further. Can you imagine if Paul planted all of these churches and then they weren't there anymore and he went back? He would have to do the same thing again. But here's what happened in the book of Acts. He did not do the same thing in Ephesus the second time he went there that he did the first time he went there. What did he do the second time? He established, he strengthened, he devoted his time to establishing and strengthening the church. What did he do the first time? heralded the gospel in the marketplaces and gathered believers together. Why didn't he do the exact same thing? I think it's because the church was to be the constant gospel presence so that they could reach deep into that community, into every home and every place and every person so that every man, woman, and child could know and love Jesus. That's what the church is. And it's not programs, though programs are nice. It's what we do when we organize. It's not buildings It's not events. Those are all good. We should do them because it it helps us serve and love our communities and it puts structure to what we do but it is primarily the people of God living by the teaching of Christ rooted in the gospel, loving each other and seeking the welfare of where they live. We desperately need that in the upper peninsula of Michigan. If you've lived here for any amount of time, you know that there are people who may be God-fearing but not gospel-believing. I grew up here. I was raised in the church. I didn't believe. I was baptized as a baby. I didn't believe. I was God-fearing person, but not a believer in Christ. And God, through his mercy, got me in the army and brought me back here. And I love the UP. Tim, Pastor Tim asked me to speak this because I spend most of my time outside of shepherding my own church trying to figure out how to motivate our churches to plant and establish healthy churches in the UP. I've got a plan. It's Joe's plan, I'll be honest with you. I hope that I'm in line with the Lord. But here's what I believe from what I just showed you this is the mission of the Holy Spirit. This is where he is most powerfully working, in the strengthening of churches and the establishing of healthy churches in, the, in, in regions all around the world. But for us, it's right here. And you and I have a boundary. We're not going to plant in Lake Michigan, and we're not going to plant in Lake Superior, and we're probably not going to go to Chicago, even if some of you are from Chicago. Okay? Now, we have a, we have a sandbox right in front of us to play in. It's the, the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan. I have been here... I've been all over the Upper Peninsula. I have lived here, as I said, most of my life. I used to read meters for the gas company, walking the streets and backyards of homes all over uh, the uh, uh, Iron County and and Dickinson County. And I saw people and I met people. And I can tell you that despite the money we pump into social programs and efforts to serve the needs of our communities, that we have an increase in the problems that plague us. Despite millions of dollars invested in Christian radio, I think we have seven of them that reach us, and they at least cost a million dollars each to run. Despite that, we still have a decrease of people who claim to have a faith in Christ. This is not a slam on radio, okay? If we've got the money as a church to do those sorts of things, great. But we're investing a ton of money in things because we're looking for other answers than the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does our community need more? Jesus. He is the one that rescues us from sin and darkness. He's the one that can change our hearts. What do we have? We have more drunkenness, we have more drug abuse in the UP. We have broken marriages, increasing sexual morality, increasing confusion in the same area. And I am convinced that the only answer beyond the band-aid of generosity is the gospel of Jesus Christ moving forward into every community through the bold preaching of the faith, the gathering of believers, the teaching of those believers, the the appointing of strong leaders to shepherd and care for those churches and drive them on mission and commending them to the same work. That's what it is. Now, from time to time, I think the church drifts from this. We have mission drift. But let me show you the need. I don't think I need to prove that we have mission drift. It's easy to see that. We get distracted by social affairs. We get distracted by political stuff. We get distracted by all sorts of things. And Jesus said, I got a work for you to do while you're waiting. And that work is primarily to bear witness to me. And the product of that witness are strong and healthy churches. Now, let me show you the need in the Upper Peninsula. There are 301,000 or so residents. This comes from the most recent survey published in 2020 by the U.S. Census Bureau. The religious numbers come from an organization that has long uh, uh, evaluated religious uh, standards in the the Upper Peninsula and in the nation called ARDA, A-R-D-A, uh, and there's a little bit of information here that comes from Pew Research as well. Some major firms, major data. I do not believe that statistics give us perfection. They just give us a clue. Okay? So these do not determine things. They just give us some idea. Out of the 301, 301,000 residents, 41% associate with the church in some way. Okay? That's, four, that's 125,000 people, give or take. Out of those 140 or 125,000, only 40,000 attend a church one time per month. Now, church attendance does not make a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. This is just a measure of the Upper Peninsula's interest in religious things. And when I sp- say attend a church or religious service, this is any body of worship in the Upper Peninsula. There are 555 places of worship in the Upper Peninsula. If everyone who claims, to associate with a church were to attend those 555 churches, it would be about just shy of 300 people per church. Our little church can't handle that. We can't seat that many people. And the same is true across every denomination. Out of that, four, uh, out of that total number, only 9.2% are evangelical. Now, what does evangelical mean? We use that word a lot, it's used in politics a lot. We gotta get the evangelical base, but nobody knows what it means. It originally meant those who believed that the Bible was the inerrant word of God given to us for our wisdom so that we would come to faith in Christ and that we would grow in maturity in Christ. That we were to be born again through faith in Jesus as the gospel was preached. We are to be preachers of the gospel as evangelicals and we are to love one another and love our communities and be rich in good works. That's what the definition of evangelical meant when it emerged in the 17th century. 1700s are a little bit earlier than that. And that's typically what is meant when we talk about evangelical today, though it is shifting significantly in our current political climate. 9.2%, and that's 11,500. So 11,500 people in the Upper Peninsula are part of what is considered to be an evangelical church. A church that holds to those things I just said. That the Bible is the inerrant word of God. What I'm not saying is there are not other churches that do that, or there are not different denominations that believe those things, but there is significant drift. And what the stats show us is that the Upper Peninsula is increasingly becoming irreligious and indifferent. Ten years ago, this number was 51%. It's dropping. Marquette County and Schoolcraft County, and one other one, I think it's Houghton, or it might be Chippewa, have over 50% who have no religious preference at all. And that's just gonna be more and more. That's the numbers, right? Less and less people have an interest in in Jesus or things of the gospel, and less and less people have uh, any connection with it whatsoever. But I think this is also true in our experience It's not just that there is a need numerically in the Upper Peninsula, that I think there's a need experientially. If you want to go to the next one for me, there are three things that are a problem, I think, in the Upper Peninsula that demonstrate the need to establish healthy churches and to strengthen existing churches in the UP. Legalism. This is the idea that Jesus is not enough to save you, that you must... Add to Jesus in order to be saved certain works that this church or this group say you must do. You must only read the King James. You must only wear uh, slacks and dress up and part your hair a certain way. Women cannot wear jeans. They must wear skirts, you know, or other things like that. There are groups like that who are incredibly legalistic that if you don't toe the line with their rules, you are not in the faith. That is moving people away from the gospel. It is putting a bunch of barriers in front of the gospel and is making a bunch of people believe that they've got to do a bunch of things in order to get to Jesus. Those people never read the woman at the well account where Jesus reached out to a sexually immoral woman and loved her without any barrier and called her to faith. Legalism is an incredible problem in many of our churches, especially on the smaller end, and I run in those circles. My church is on the smaller end of things, and that's, that's most of the people that reach out to me, and they soon find out that Joe Basso is not in their school of thought. And guess what? I'm suddenly not. As soon as they find out I don't agree with them, I'm not a Christian anymore. I've, I've interacted with some of these leaders. Traditionalism is another problem that is plaguing the churches. And, and what I mean by this is not... Um, what you necessarily think. What I mean by this is the pattern that is common in the Upper Peninsula. And this is the pattern. You get, you're born. Your parents bring you to the church and you get baptized as an infant and you got no idea what's going on. And your parents and everybody else tell you you're part of that community and you are good. And then you go through confirmation or catechism and you get that done and you have your first communion and now you are good. You've jumped through that hoop too. You've received a little bit more of that grace. And then you don't, after that, if you're a teenager, you really don't touch the church at all, because you're done. And Baptists have the same problem. Our programs ended up being interpreted the same way. Not that we intended it that way, but it's just what happened. In our church, almost every kid after Awana, Awana never came back around. Were we being effective? When I talked to these kids now as adults, one of them said to me, I thought I was good. She was very honest. She's now attending our church her and her husband, loving Jesus came to faith. I uh, praise God for that. That's fruit of that ministry, that's fruit of that work. But she said I was so confused. I thought well, I had finished the deal, just like all my other friends who had gone through their things. The next time you touch the church after you go through confirmation is when you get married. You come to a pastor and you say, "We want you to marry us because we want God to bless our marriage." And you know what I say to people who come to me and tell me that? I say, "That's great. I can't do that. I don't have that power." But if you will follow Jesus Christ and love Him and love each other as Jesus loved you, you will have a blessed marriage. Oh, well, we don't want that. I didn't have anybody tell me that, but I have most people not want me to do their wedding anymore, which works out good for me because my schedule's wide open so I can come here and speak. <laughs> this traditionalism leads to this idea that my grandma and grandpa were members of this church, and so I'm a member of this church. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever felt that way? I did, I did. My great-grandparents were part of the Presbyterian Church in Iron Mountain. My grandpa was an elder there forever. I was baptized there. I must be okay. And then I realized I wasn't okay. And I needed to come to faith in Christ. Traditionalism is keeping people from the gospel. It causes people to jump through hoops and thinking that if they do those things, they're okay. Churches need to be strengthened. Churches need to be started because churches have drifted and then we have churches in name only that have moved on to all sorts of other things other than Jesus like the galatian church who would replace the gospel with some legalistic ideas churches that really are just churches because that's what they're called but there's no gospel there's no jesus there's no word one of them that i attended when i was younger with my stepfather on christmas eve instead of preaching about the coming of christ they talked about the Giving of a Christmas tree to a poor family and how we too should be generous and give Christmas trees and other things to people. No mention of Jesus in the service at all. Not one. That's what I mean by churches in name only. Guideposts and those sorts of things like Oprah churches. So what do we do? I got three things for you and then I got a big vision and it's the thing I've been <laughs> stressing over all week. These three are, are easy, but they're hard because you've got to put it into work. Number one, pray. And I mean pray like Jesus is coming and hell is real. Pray. Pray that God would strengthen you as a church. Pray that he would root his word in your own hearts and in your, in your marriages and that your lives and your households would be ordered by Christ's teaching and radiate his salvation power. Pray that your leaders would love the church and labor for it, suffering for it, being burdened for you guys. Pray that that would be true across the upper peninsula of Michigan. Pray for that. Paul said, I, I pray for you all the time that your faith would increase, that your love would abound, that your hope would be great. Pray for those things. Make it a pattern of your life because this is the heart of God. God. Second, you need to learn. Learn what, the, what God says about the church. Years ago when I was called to be a pastor, I didn't want to be one. I was a meter reader and a former soldier. And my friend told me, good dear friend of mine in a church in Albuquerque said, Joe, I love you and I think you don't understand what the church is or the purpose of it at all. I want you to study it and learn it because when you see what the church really is, you will love it. And so I did that and I decided, yes, I wanted to serve and labor for the good of the body of Christ because that's where his heart is. Learn about the church. Learn that it is a people. What does that mean? Learn how you fit. Think about your own giftings and wirings and and explore that and seek the Lord in that. Learn. Because if you always think of the church as a place and programs, you will never want to see it established somewhere else. But when you see it for what it really is, you will want every community in the Upper Peninsula to know this. And third, labor. Work hard together, help each other, explore your gifts and use them. Ephesians 3 4 and 5 lay out that every one of you is given for the building up of the church. 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 tell you that you should excel, you should strive to build up the church. That's not for pastors. That's for everyone. The professionalism of this type of pulpit has killed the labor of God's people and caused us to be passive pew sitters rather than actively engaging in the life of our churches. Let me share with you the vision and I'll I'll close. I know I've been... Labyrinth. I hope you get this. I, I want to show you that God has a great work and that witness is ongoing. That's what you and I are to do. Second, there is a great need in the Upper Peninsula. It has to happen because less and less people are interested in Jesus, less and less people know about him, and there is significant drift away from the core of the gospel in our churches. So what do we do? I think we need a core team. I've told this to all of the pastors in our lead team. Jordan has heard this from me for, since you came here. I I rant on this so much in our pastors' meetings, and we have a heart towards this. We agree on this in a lot of ways. But I think we need a team of people who will work to accomplish what I'm about to lay out to you, who commit themselves to labor for this as a a group across our churches. And when I say that, I mean across Converged Great Lakes churches and any other church that is like-minded and wants to join us in this. But this is primarily what we would need to do, the one in the middle. We need to train pastors to start and strengthen churches in the Upper Peninsula. Very few want to come here. I have talked with many. I have tried to recruit many. I had a guy call me from Texas and say, I'm thinking the Lord's leading me to plant a church in the UP. And I was like, great. He's like, tell me about the UP. I heard you're the subject matter expert. So I told him about it. And he's like, yeah, we're not coming. (laughs) I got to change my pitch. He's like, well, tell me about the weather. My wife's really concerned about the weather. I'm like, it's great. It's sunny all the time. It's like when I was in Barcelona, 74, year round. No, it's harsh. It's hard. And after all these conversations, this is what I came to. The Upper Peninsula is an unknown place. When I go to pastor's conferences, nobody knows where it is. Nobody cares. I told him, if you're a pastor here and you want to come here, no one will care about the books you write. No one will care about what you um, do except for Jesus because this is a place that Mountain Dew leaves off the map. Okay? It is. It is. We don't have, when we send people away to go to pastoral ministry in hopes that they'll come back, they don't come back. Do you know why? Cities are nice. You know why else? They have a ton of debt. And these pastors come in to these churches, especially churches my size, which are the majority of churches in the UP, by the way, okay, under 100, They come in, they're well meaning. They are called by the Lord. They're like, I'm doing this. God's called me. And they love those people. They really do. I've known some of them. I've walked with some of them. And then three years in, their student loans come due and they have a baby and they're now struggling and they're like, oh, no, we don't have enough money. Church, can you pay me more? And the church is like, you got it all? And they go, oh, the Lord is calling me somewhere else. And they go in and out. And you know what these small churches settle for? The bottom of the barrel in some cases, who lead them all astray. We don't have people that want to come. We don't even have people in our churches that aspire to this work because it's become a professional thing. We need to train new pastors and start to start and strengthen churches right here, and we can do that. We can do that through pastoral residency programs, right in Grace, right at Felch Mountain. I've tried it three or four times, but you know what my problem is? I'm in the middle of nowhere, and the guys that have come to me are like, I, I have to drive 40 minutes to the grocery store. I'm like, yeah, suck it up. <laughs> yeah, and, and they, they leave. I've had three guys leave me on that. That's their choice. I, whatever God leads them to, I'm not mad about that. But we desperately need this work to happen. We cannot start anything without good leaders. And you cannot build anything good without good leaders. So I urge you to consider this as a body of believers. We desperately need this. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it can look like a small study of people laboring in the, church, in the library over here, studying this word, studying the UP, and asking the Lord if they would call them to go. Some of you might be Priscilla and Aquila types who have businesses, and God leads you to be a part of that work. Priscilla and Aquila planted churches with Paul, and yet they were business people. Some of you might be like Timothy or Titus, that God is calling you up right now and saying, This is a noble task and I want to be a part of it, but I don't know how to get there and I don't have the money. Great. You don't need money to get there. You need the sense of call, and then the church rallies around you and prepares you for the work. That doesn't cost money. That costs effort and blood and sweat and tears. That's what it costs. Money's easy. The stuff I just mentioned is hard. Some of you may be those people. Some of you may be like Epaphroditus who was sent from a church just to help, just to, just to be a part of a work, to see something happen, like in Ishpeming with Pastor Kevin McElhaney and the great work that God's done through him there. With 100, 100 people or more coming to faith in Christ who didn't know Jesus. Praise God for that. Labor, blood, sweat, tears, right? We need that more in the UP, and I urge you to begin to pray and think hard about this and consider this idea that we desperately need to train Upers for the UP. We need to go to the unknown. We need men who will remain unknown to make Christ known. That's what we need here. And some of you may be called to that. Some of you may be called to support that work. Please pray for that. I believe we can plant a church in every county capital. There's seven left that Converge doesn't have churches in. Seven in the UP. Yes, I already told you there's churches all over. You can't, if if, 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 if 20,000 more believers came to faith in Christ in the UP, you wouldn't have any buildings to house them in. We need church planters. We need pastors who will shepherd them. I could ramble more. I've went long. I hope you hear my heart in this. This is my call to shepherd Felch Mountain Bible Chapel until God gives me orders somewhere else. But right now, that's there until I die to strengthen them, and second, to labor in the UP to start and strengthen churches so that every man, woman, and child in every place gets to hear the true gospel and a, response to, and a chance to respond to it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, as we sing, as we uh, do whatever else, and as we finish this time together, I submit this to you and I submit this to your people asking that your spirit would do your mighty work Thank you that your word guides us and leads us. Thank you that we have such great resources. And please bless this body of believers. Continue to prosper them in every way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.